Where's that dust coming from? Still finding debris after vacuuming? Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y.com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. This is an RNZ podcast. Hello, I'm Simon Morris. It's often been said, and not just by me, that if it's not in the script, then it won't make it onto the screen. With a good script, even a mediocre director can make a passable movie. But with a bad script, not even the best director in the world can make a good one. But often the best things in a film, the reason why it works at all, aren't actually in the script. I'm no good at being noble, but it doesn't take much to see that the problems of three little people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world. Someday you'll understand that. Ah, no. He's looking at you, kid. When Humphrey Bogart reluctantly kissed off Ingrid Bergman at the end of Casablanca, it wasn't the Epstein brothers' witty script that conquered the world. It was a look between the two, the ultimate picture painting a thousand words. Many, in fact, I might say just about all of the great moments in movies are visual ones, which, of course, makes the job of a radio movie reviewer that much harder. Disturb nothing. Leave all just as it is. I'm sorry, sir. Stay. Your master is a fine painter, Greet. Look at that dress. You can almost stroke the satin. Well, because my background is music, script writing and radio, I tend to think that the meat of a film is going to be on the soundtrack. But of course it isn't. Even someone as audio-oriented as me recognises the power of a great shot or a great cut. The famous edit between Peter O'Toole as Lawrence blowing out a match and sunrise in the Arabian desert in Lawrence of Arabia was what convinced audiences to stick around for nearly four hours. An even more important desert shot built a multi-billion dollar empire. Where do you think you're going? Well, I'm not going that way. It's much too rocky. This way is much easier. What makes you think there are settlements over there? Don't get technical with me. Forget Luke Skywalker, Darth Vader, Jedi Knights and the power of the Force. It was two robots lost in the desert that sold the world of Star Wars in a way that George Lucas never managed again. Franchises have frequently been activated by one telling shot, often ad-libbed on the day. Like Ursula Andress rising from the waves like Venus in the very first James Bond movie, Dr No. It's all right. I'm not supposed to be here either. I take it you're not. Are you alone? What are you doing here? Looking for shells? No, I'm just looking. Now, I'd argue that the equivalent shot establishing the Marvel Cinematic Universe as something more than simply boys and their toys was one that didn't even make the cut in the second Iron Man film. 
But Gwyneth Paltrow kissing Robert Downey Jr.'s helmet and throwing it out of a plane was a highlight of the trailer and, in my opinion, Gwyneth's entire career. Give me a smooch for good luck. I might not make it back. Go get him, boss. You complete me. It's all in the look, in other words. While a brilliant script can engage the mind, the magic is often elsewhere. As the man said, the lies are in the dialogue, the truth is in the pictures. Nobody writes unreliable dialogue like the Coen brothers, but the joy of Hail Caesar was watching George Clooney floundering in a biblical epic. A truth we could see if we had, but... If we had... Well, this week, two films totally dependent on how they look. The almost dialogue-free Oscar nominee EO and a little documentary about a celebrated watercolour painter, Eric Grevilleus. But first, a new film from Marvel by, my count, the umpteenth one, The Marvels. We destroyed Thanos. But it's not over... My work is inevitable. There will always be more to finish it. It's clear that the masters of the Marvel Cinematic Universe are starting to worry that people might think that comic book blockbusters are all a bit blokey. So recently there's been a pushback with films and streaming TV series aimed at women. Black Widow, Captain Marvel, Ms. Marvel, Valkyrie and the rest. You can stand tall. Without standing alone. They're here. But the complaint isn't so much that Marvel product targets males, it's that it targets 12-year-old males, 12-year-old boys of all ages, maybe. People who pride themselves on encyclopedic knowledge of all the comics and how they fit together, and an endless tolerance for interminable battle scenes. Hardcore comic book fans, in other words. What the? Now, don't you tell me to smile. You stick around, I'll make you what you want. Hi. We're looking for Kamala Khan. <laughs> the appeal of the early MCU films was that they aimed at the widest possible audience, not just the geekosphere. However, something like the Marvels, aimed firmly at 12-year-old female fans, is unlikely to reach beyond existing followers of Ms. Marvel, Kamala Khan, and Captain Marvel, Carol Danvers. Carol Danvers, prodigal child of the Milky Way. Nick Fury. My favourite one-eyed man of intrigue. How goes it out there? Uh, you know, cold, no air, space... Well, let's assume that you're not part of that core audience. So here's what's going on in the Marvels. After doing a bunch of stuff in previous Marvel movies, the almost too powerful Captain Marvel, Carol to her boss Nick Fury, is resting in outer space when something happens. Something involving arch-villain Dar Ben. Captain Marvel. The Annihilator. You took everything from me. And now I'm returning the favour. 
You can't make an omelette without offending arch-villains and somehow blame a couple of magic amulets. Captain Marvel finds her powers confused with a couple of other Marvels. One of them is the daughter of Carol's best friend, it's complicated, Monica Rambeau. She's entangled our light-based powers, so we switch places whenever we use them. And the third one is Ms. Marvel, the franchise's first Muslim teenager superhero. So if you do your signature move, you find yourself swapping places between the three of you. You can absorb light. I can see it. And Kamala... Who's Kamala? Hi. She can turn light into physical matter, which I have never heard of. I could totally show you. No! I know, you don't have to tell me. It is a bit ridiculous and also rather more PG-13 Disney than hardcore Marvel. Kamala Khan, Ms. Marvel in Civvy Street, is a bit of a cartoon teenager, all OMG and LOL. She's also, like, totally starstruck by grown-up superheroes like Carol, Monica and Nick Fury. You mean like a female Spider-Man, I'm hearing from those of you still keeping up. I'm sure that's the aim, but I'm more reminded of other teen superheroes like Sailor Moon and the dreaded Josie and the Pussycats. At least the cast of the Marvels is a cut above, led from the front by no less than Brie Larson. Higher. Further. Faster. After years of toiling in the fields of independent movies, culminating in an Oscar for Room, Brie walked into a giant Marvel payday when she signed on as Captain Marvel. To be fair, she does try to do something with what she's given. Higher, further, faster, baby, as they say. She's targeting every planet we call home. I would never choose to bring anybody into this. You are not the only thing standing between this and the universe. Her backup is serviceable and hardworking rather than inspired and brilliant. Samuel L. Jackson doing Samuel L. Jackson, stars on the rise Iman Vellani as Kamala and Tiona Paris as Monica. Tiana's the one who drew the short straw when it came to pages of exposition. She tore a hole in space. There's a different reality leading into ours. The villainous Dar Ben, like most recent Marvel villains, is a bit forgettable. Zoe Ashton paces about looking unbeatable until eventually she does get beaten. Oh, spoiler alert, I suppose I should have said there. I'm asking for one last fight. You cannot protect your people. The Marbles earns brownie points for inclusiveness, certainly. The writers, director and most of the stars are women, as is the editor, designer, composer, costumes and makeup. But the audience remains predominantly male and not noticeably in the mood to give anyone brownie points for anything. 
team. Oh, no, 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 we're not a team. We're not a team. <gasps> and I wonder if even a potential young female audience might be put off by Marvel's most alarming character, Goose. Part cute pussycat, part all-devouring giant octopus. Don't say you weren't warned. Who's a good kitty, Goose? Can you? I got it. The documentary Eric Revilius' Drawn to War tells the story of an artist whose life might easily have been one of those depressing stereotypes. Like Mozart, Keats and Van Gogh before him, his major success was not to happen until many years after his death. Though unlike the usual tortured artist, Eric Revilius' life seemed remarkably happy. I find it hard to say what it is to be English, but Rebilius is part of it. You look into a Rebilius painting and the path always leads the eye and you want to walk through it. He became belatedly famous, in England at any rate, after many of his paintings were discovered at the home of his close friend Edward Borden. But when he worked before and during the Second World War, he'd already gained respect for his paintings, which were like nobody else. It's only been in the last decade or so that he's become such a household name. All my father's pictures have been under Edward Borden's bed for 40 years. What set him apart, maybe, was his love of drawing and watercolours and his skill as a designer. Mind you, design is one of those expressions of faint praise, like craftsman, another lukewarm description of Revilius at the time. Much of his early work was in tandem with his wife, Tirza Garwood, who was just as talented, some say more so, in the field of pure design. I long to walk the chalk paths. Those long white roads are a temptation. What quests they propose. They take us away to the thin air of the future or to the underworld of the past. Now, this is where I run into problems, first describing the film Eric Revilius' Drawn to War and then convincing you why I found it such an extraordinary experience. Because, like Revilius's own life, much of the film is devoted to his visual works. He fused the ancient with the modern. Tea at furlongs, you couldn't imagine something cosy. There's nobody there I always think could be called Munich 1938. The paintings, drawings and etchings are quite wonderful and director Margie Kinmouth finds ways to lightly animate some of them, particularly the uncanny ancient chalk giants carved into the South Downs of Sussex and Kent. But it's a challenge to put their extraordinary impact into words. My dearest Tirza, would you believe I've been made an honorary captain in the Royal Marines? I expect they'll be issuing me with my own brigade of paintbrushes before the day is out. What does carry are the many letters Eric sent to Tirza and others from wherever he found himself. When war broke out in 1939, he was headhunted by the military as one of Britain's war artists, a job, it turned out, he was very well suited to. What drew Revillius to war was that, although it was frightening, it was also exciting. It takes courage when you are so drawn into the condition you forget the danger. The result of war is very clear. 
is destruction. The subtitle of the film, Drawn to War, really does capture Revilius's character. Yes, he hated war. He was anti-fascist long before much of the country, in fact. But he also relished the exciting places he found himself in. Norway and Iceland, observation posts during the Battle of Britain, underwater in Royal Navy submarines. It was so nice working on deck long past midnight in bright sunshine. I enjoyed it a lot. Even the bombing, which is wonderful fireworks. And all the time he was capturing these experiences in unique drawings and paintings. They seem both of their time. I found myself reminded of wartime posters or the front covers of 1940s novels. And in a way, out of time. The comments of Revillius fans like writer Alan Bennett and artists A. Weiwei and Grayson Perry are hugely helpful here. You know, there's something he does very well. He takes unprepossessing subjects and makes them into masterpieces. But while you do have to see the paintings to see why modern critics now say he's one of England's greatest artists, it's the letters between Eric and his wife Tirza that add the humanity. Her family did not approve of Eric. And she went through an awful lot. Like so many of that generation, Eric wrote letters compulsively right up to his tragic death in a plane crash. And while I find it almost impossible to describe the unique charm of Eric Revillius drawn to war, I urge you to chase it up if you can. You'll get it when you see it. Painting was his active service. And he gave his life for it. The biggest challenge this week is a film that won over the Motion Pictures Academy this year. EO, directed by Jerzy Skolomowski, didn't pick up the Oscar for Best Foreign Film that it was nominated for, but it gained a cascade of tear-stained reviews all over the world. Not bad for an 86-year-old filmmaker. EO. Skolomowski started his career in his native Poland before seeking his fortune in the UK in the 70s and 80s. Films like Deep End, The Shout and Moonlighting were critical successes and over the years he's picked up multiple awards at Venice, Berlin and Cannes. But nothing like that of EO coming at the end of nearly 20 years away from the business. Eo <laughs> is a donkey, the Polish equivalent of Eeyore, I guess, who we meet as the star of a rundown East European circus. Well, co-star. His partner is a young woman called Magda who loves Eo dearly and stands up for him when he's mistreated by circus owner Vasil. Yeah. But physical punishment is not EO's prime worry. Suddenly, the circus finds itself closed down by animal rights protesters, insisting that such shows are cruel and barbaric. So EO is forced to quit showbiz and work on a nearby farm. Yeah. 
Prawo komornicze, artykuł 4, paragraf 28. O konfiskacie mienia żywego. To jest. Magda is heartbroken, but what can she do? She's got no money and nowhere to put EO even if she could buy him back. She and EO are distraught. But that's just the start of a story made up of ups and downs. One minute, Eo's being mistreated on a farm. Next, he finds an open gate and sets out to seek his fortune, just as Jersey Skodomowski did all those years before. He finds himself a new home and a new job as therapy donkey for invalid children. <coughs> But nothing lasts. Eo's life is a series of accidents, some good, some bad. He finds himself adopted by a local football team who think he's a lucky charm, only to be attacked by supporters of a rival team for the same reason. Human capacity for both kindness and cruelty is a running theme in Eo. As we watch EO travel west from Poland to Austria to Italy, it's tempting to see the film as somehow political, an allegory of what's going on in Europe right now. But I don't think that's the intent of Jerzy Skolomowski, who co-wrote EO with his wife, Eva Piaskowska. The story is told entirely from the point of view of the donkey. In fact, to get the performance he wanted, no fewer than six donkey performers were used to play EO, all getting star billing. Even Isabelle Huppert, playing the Duchess near the end of the film, had to accept a mere guest star credit. Basta, per favore, basta! It's a reminder of how strange donkeys are and how rarely we look at them for any great length of time. They feature in the Bible, of course, and in Robert Brisson's famous classic, Oazar Balthazar. Each time we're reminded of donkeys' long-suffering patience, how docile they are and how little say they have in what happens to them. At the end, I was hoping for a Disney happy ending, even though I knew it was unlikely to happen. As a famous Disney tearjerker put it, man was in the forest, and that never works out well, so be prepared and bring a hanky. And as we also pull up to Journey's End, it's time to go. I'm Simon Morrison. I hope you'll join me at the movies same time next week. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. 
Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.